all of John has pointed us to this moment. All of his gospel, chapter after chapter, verse after verse, story after story have, have, have pointed us and, and we've watched Jesus be so intentional with his words, with his actions, with his time, with the people he spent time with, with the, the specific signs and miracles that he did. It all pointed us to Easter. And John helpfully wrote to us in just a couple of verses that everything in his gospel was recorded to help us as readers see who Jesus was and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And because Jesus is the Christ, because Jesus is the Son of, Lo of God, we can enter into a life-changing, transformative belief that, that we can have life in his name, like real life, abundant life, fulfilling life, meaningful life. And so let me read for us from John 20 as we continue through kind of the, the implications and the, the exploration of the meaning of Easter. Start at verse 19. And when it was evening on the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, just a few hours before these verses take place, Peter and John had run to the empty tomb, and they'd seen Jesus' empty grave clothes. They looked in, and John says he looked in, he saw, and he believed. And then they went away. They went home. Mary had, had stuck around, and she had an encounter with two angels, and then with Jesus himself. And she ran to tell the disciples, who had left prematurely, it seems. And she announced, I've seen the Lord. And then she shared with the disciples all that Jesus had said with her. And I don't know all the things Jesus said, but what a, what a moment that would have been for her. When he, he revealed himself to her, and she, she fell at his feet. And he says, don't cling to me. Don't hang on to me just yet. There's still a little bit more to go. And that conversation, again, I don't know what it would have been, but imagine the life that it would have given her this moment she spent with him. Now, you would have think that, that when she ran back to the disciples and said, I've seen him, it makes sense that someone didn't just steal the body. I, I've seen him, that it might have put some steel in the spine of the disciples. But instead, we find them locked in a room together, hiding and fearful. And now listen, I don't blame them one bit for hiding. I mean, sure, it would have been nice if they got a little bit empowered by the story, but I don't blame them at all. They're still trying to come to terms with what's been going on over the last week. Remember, Easter week, often it takes us, you know, a few Sundays to get through it all. But, you know, just a week ago, they'd entered Jerusalem with like a king's welcome. And then a few days after that, that same crowd that said, you know, Hosanna said, crucify him. And then this movement that they've been a part of with Jesus for years seems to have been crushed because they watched him die on a cross and put in a grave. And it was quiet and dark. And then a couple of days later, the body's gone. And, I mean, if we have some familiarity with the story, we know, okay, guys, come on. 
get with it. This is, this is all part of the plan. But, but in that moment, no question, their heads would have just been spinning. And in the same sense, uh, they're probably worried about their own futures. They thought they were going to be a part of this, this revolutionary thing. Little did they know they are a part of it. But at this moment, they, they thought uh, they had these hopes and dreams of a, a new Israel, a new kingdom coming. And then the leader gets killed. And it's not too far a grasp for them to think, okay, if they crucified Jesus, and everybody knows that we've been hanging out with Jesus, maybe we're next. And so it's evening, John tells us. And in evening, darkness comes. And John is very deliberate in the Gospel of John, in his writings, to, to, to give us this dichotomy of light and dark. So again, it's intentional that he's mentioning this detail. Darkness is coming, and they're hiding away, locked for fear that they'd be found. But then what happens? Jesus showed up. He, he came to them. He came right where they were. And before we even get into what Jesus said, or before we even talk about how Jesus got there, because I don't know, just stop here for a second. The disciples were overcome with worldly fear. They were, they were sent into hiding for fear of worldly powers. And Jesus came and found them in the midst of that. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm fearful. Sometimes I'm a little worried about how things are going. When I look at some of the, the, the directions that our culture is headed and what might be allowed to be said, what might be not allowed to said, and the implications of, of things in, in our country and our, our, our world at this point, it would be really easy for me to think, okay, I'm going to learn from the disciples. I'm going to go hide away, take some of my closest friends, lock the doors, because then I can be safe. But Jesus comes in the midst of that. He comes in the midst of our worldly fears, our worldly worry, our worldly worries. Even locked away in a hidden room is not too far from Jesus. He came to them. And we could speculate how Jesus appeared in that room with them, but it would be exactly that, just speculation. We can, we can guess, you know, maybe if we're, we, we don't like miracles, we could say maybe there was a window open and he crawled up the wall and snuck in. Maybe, maybe the door wasn't actually locked, they just thought it was locked. Maybe whatever. But it would all be speculation. And there has been you know, tons of ink spent on how this happened. But here's a few things that we do know. After Jesus was resurrected, he appeared many times to many people. We know that he had the kind of body that the disciples could see and, and touch and hold. We know that he, he ate and drank with the disciples. Uh, John, the author of this gospel, wrote a few letters to the church later, and we have at least, we have three of them in our Bible. And as he opens First John, what we would call First John, he says this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. And so this, this was a, a real body that Jesus showed up in. So Jesus uh, simply passed through the grave clothes on that Easter Sunday. Remember, we, we, we get to the tomb, they look in, the clothes are there, just kind of folded, the, the face mask folded, put on the shelf, I'm not going to need this anymore. 
he also could pass through locked doors. And the disciples did not, and no doubt could not, explain how this happened, but they kept testifying that it did happen. Even when it cost them their lives, they kept saying, we saw him, we saw him, we saw him. He was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead. Now for the author here, John, he purposely tells us in this verse, and then a couple of verses down, where we'll see tomorrow or next week, that the doors were locked. And I don't know how many times we've said it, but there are no wasted words in the Bible. There's a reason he tells us they're locked. It's because they were locked. And so he's highlighting Jesus' miraculous appearance to us. He's showing again to us that Jesus has power over creation and created things. And he's again reminding his readers that Jesus is no ordinary human, but that he is the Son of God. So Jesus enters the room miraculously. And we're not sure how many people were in the room. It might have been uh, just 10 disciples. Judas is gone, and, and we read a little bit later that, that Thomas wasn't there, so there could have been 10 left. So it could have been as few as 10. It could have been, there could have been others that we don't know that are named there. But I can tell you, if someone just randomly showed up in a locked room, uh, it probably would have startled some people, right? It probably would have set them off a little bit. And so he stands among his frightened disciples, and he says to them, Peace be with you. What glorious words. Now this was in the first century Middle East, right up today. This is a, a common greeting. It's like saying hello. It's like saying, how's it going? But when Jesus said this to his disciples in this locked room, this was way more than him coming up to them and saying, hey guys, what's up? Did you miss me? I told you this was going to happen, right? Right? Let's look at kind of the weight even beneath this statement for just a minute. If we take every story out of its place and we look at it within the context of the whole big story, the whole grand narrative of the Bible, which is a good thing to do, every piece fits in, think about the Old Testament just for a little bit. When we read the, the story sections of the Old Testament, the narrative sections of the Old Testament, whenever God shows up or an angel shows up, what happens? The story's pretty common. You can trace it through, and you can see that almost every single time there's, there's three things that happen. First, the people that have the encounter with the Lord or the host of angels' armies or whatever, whenever we see it, there's some fear there. And so again, I suspect the disciples were a little bit nervous when all of a sudden there's an extra person in the room. There's some fear in the one being visited. The next thing that happens is there's, there's a calming word spoken to those being visited. Something like, do not be afraid, or fear not, or peace. Then the third thing that happens, when, whenever these uh, encounters happen in the Old Testament, there's, there's a word of commissioning or a word of sending that's given to the person being visited. And again, we, we can look at um, case study of case study, case study, and see this. Moses, we see it, and Joshua, we see it, and we see it in the prophets, we see it in King David, that, that they had these experiences, they, they, they were then commissioned to something. And that's actually what we have here. It's another encounter with the Lord. The disciples, disciples are fearful. Jesus shows up, gives a calming word, peace, and then he sends them out on mission, which we'll see soon. But that's not all that's going on here. I mean, that's enough, but that's not all that's going on here. This greeting has massive implications for the disciples, but it's also profoundly personal. 
Jesus, in these simple four words, are also, he's also summing up the essence of his work and the presence of uh, the reason he came to the earth. And they're shocked that disciples might not have seen it at first, but as they no doubt reflected on this encounter and, and spent time together later and looked back, and they would have seen that, that again and again Jesus here is, is reminding them of the peace that he came to bring. He promised it again and again and again before he was crucified. And he, again, is here telling them that this peace is coming. Peace to, is for you. It's a gift, and it's a marker of the kingdom. We can flip back to John 14, 27. This is, again, Jesus' kind of last big preaching moment with his disciples. In John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give it to you as the world gives, but don't let your hearts be troubled or fearful. Maybe they remembered that discussion. A couple of chapters later in John 16, 33, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in the world, but take courage, be courageous. I've conquered the world. I came to bring peace. Again, no doubt as the disciples reflected on these things and, and put together their notes and compared stories and, and remembered the times that they'd been together, these past teachings of Jesus would have been recalled as his promise of peace. And now he's come and said, peace. But there's even more than that. The word that we translate as peace is the word shalom. And that word shalom is, is much more weighty and much more uh, kind of broad in definition than we think when we just hear peace today. This wasn't simply a, 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 a greeting that said, you know, I, I hope you're well. I hope life is calm. I hope it's smooth sailing. Uh, see you later kind of thing. But when God's people spoke the word shalom, it, it meant that, sure, it was a greeting, but it also carried with it this underlying hope and expectation looking forward to when God would come back and redeem everything and, and reconcile everything and, and would draw people to him. It was a looking forward to when God's kingdom had dawned. And so this word carries the weights of the hope of God's people. Longing for and looking forward to when he would come back and redeem and reconcile and reclaim all things, setting things back the way they were supposed to be, the way they were created to be. So as one writer says, when, when Jesus says shalom on Easter evening, it's the complement of it is finished on the cross. For the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. This is, without it is finished, there is no peace be with you. They work together. They build on one another. Jesus had promised peace, and now he's delivered. Now the doors may have been locked, but Jesus proves that he was their crucified master by showing his hands, by showing his side. In the parallel passage in Luke chapter 24, Luke says they, he showed his feet as well. The parts of his body where these scars and wounds from just a couple days ago could be seen. And this meant that the disciples had to start wrestling with, with all the, the weight and the meaning of all this, and they would soon grasp what became central to the church's mission ever since, that the risen Lord is none other than the crucified sacrifice. Jesus before Easter was Jesus after Easter, one and the same. 
Now, you and I don't get to see, we don't get to touch these wounds, but we too have to wrestle with this. And we'll get more into it next week, but the most important question that we have to ask and we have to answer is, who do we say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus? When the disciples realize more and more and their their eyes start to see and understand in these verses that this is him, they rejoice. And they rejoice just like Jesus told them they would. In John 16, verse 20, he says, Truly I tell you, you will weep and you will mourn, but the world will rejoice. There's a Good Friday passage for you. You will become sorrow, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And 22, so also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy away from you. And it, it would have been amazing to be in that room. Now, throughout John's gospel, one of the, the key things that he keeps emphasizing is that Jesus is described as the one who has been sent from God. Again and again, we see this kind of put on Jesus. He's been sent, he's been sent, and he steps into that role and says, I'm the one that's been sent. But now, with his work almost finished, his final task is to send out his followers, just like he was sent by the Father. This is John's great commission passage, if you will. He builds it off of the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17. Remember, we looked at that a little while ago, a couple months ago, a few months ago, Look at how Jesus prayed for us as his followers. This is John 17, 18. He's talking to God, talking to the Father, and he says, Father, as you sent me into the world, now I'm sending them into the world. And now in this moment, he says to his disciples, maybe you guys, you remember that I prayed this. Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. That meant that everything that they had seen Jesus do, all that they had had started to do under his coaching, under his mentoring, under his teaching for the last number of years, they were now to keep on doing. Just like Jesus had come as the Father's representative, now the disciples are being sent out as Jesus' representative to go, to bring light to the dark places, to do the things that Jesus had done, to point the world to the reality of God and to the truth of Jesus' words. Now, the kind of underlying grammar in this verse says that that this is still Jesus' mission. As you have been sending me into the world, now I am sending them into the world. So it's not like Jesus is leaving us alone. It's not like Jesus got to this point on Easter evening and said, okay, guys, I'm sending you. I'm heading back to put up my feet up because this is exhausting. Instead, he says, I'm sending you, and then I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit. Once again, this is a major theme in John's gospel. It's almost what we said at the outset. Again, I don't remember how long ago, but this is probably one of the reasons John actually wrote a gospel. It was significantly later than the other three, and we have Matthew who kind of wrote specifically with a Jewish audience in mind. We have Mark who just kind of, his head was spinning and said, okay, we've got to get this stuff out. We've got to keep teaching these things. We've got Dr. Luke who, who needed to write an orderly account of all the things that happened. And those letters were circulating, those books were circulating, and then, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, however long it was, John says, those are all well and good, but we, we need something more. Something more was going on, and so let me help you see it from the spiritual eyes. And so the major theme in his writing is that the work of Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And now, as Jesus prepares to return to the Father, he says to his followers, 
receive the Holy Spirit. This empowering, this this power of the Spirit is essential to the mission of God. Again, we see it throughout John. Back in chapter 1, John the baptizer was told by God that the one who you see the Spirit descend on and remain on is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This guy's set aside, so pay attention, John. Watch for him. Later in chapter 3, we see Jesus known as the, the one person that, gave, that God gave his Spirit to without measure. Again, they're, they're before Jesus came in the Old Testament, we see the Spirit rest on people and empower them for times and places. We can, again, we can go through probably most of the characters you know. Samson, David, Moses, Joshua, the prophets, the priests. These, the Spirit came and worked through them. But finally, now with Jesus, at the fullness of the Spirit in and through him. He's described in chapter 7, especially as the one that the Spirit flows through like living waters, a source of life and refreshment and renewal. Back in chapter 14 as well, Jesus had told his disciples in 14 verse 12, the one who believes in me will also do the works I do, and even greater works than these. Now we kind of wrestled with that a fair bit when we preached that text some time ago, but that's crazy, right? Like that's not crazy, that's mind-blowing, right? That Jesus says, you've watched me do these things. What have they seen him do? Water to wine. In 14, Lazarus has come back from the dead, healed the sick, fed people, uh, given people value, dignity, all these things, right? Because all these things you've watched me do, guys, you're going to have an even greater impact than me. You're going to do greater things than me. And it's not by their own strength, because a couple of verses later, he says, the Father will give you another counselor, another helper, another advocate, the paraclete. You will get this Holy Spirit and it will be with you forever. And down in verse 26, the counselor of the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he's coming. He will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. That means for the disciples and for us, that means we are being sent, we are being commissioned. And in, here in verse 20, it means we're to keep advancing the work of God and that we will continue to be empowered just as Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so there is a sense that, that this verse, John 20, 22, is kind of the climax of the entire gospel. That this spirit that was suggested and kind of pointed towards throughout all of Jesus' ministry, the one that was promised in that upper room discourse back in chapters 14 to 17, the one that was symbolized on the cross is now given to the disciples in a personal way. Jesus fulfills the words that he gave at the Feast of Tabernacles back in chapter 7 when he said, anyone who comes to me will drink living water and will never thirst again. He was talking about the Holy Spirit, which he couldn't give until his mission was done and he was glorified. And now Jesus has been glorified. He's died, resurrected, conquered death. And he takes that spirit that's been empowering him and he gives it to his disciples. Now these Last two verses, 22 and 23, might be two of the most controversial verses in all of John, not in a negative way, but, but in a trying to rightly understand the depths and the implications of what's being said here. And again, papers and papers and books and arguments have happened about what is going on here, and we could get into the mud of that, but we don't want to get in the mud of that this morning. But let me tell you what it says in, in verse 23, when it says, when Jesus says, if you forgive someone's sins, they're forgiven, and if they're not, you're not. 
What he is not saying is that all of a sudden, you and I are the new arbiters of truth. What he's not saying is that all of a sudden, this group that calls themselves followers of Jesus holds on to some sort of special power, and the world needs to come to us and grovel at our feet in order to be forgiven. Please forgive me. I know, and, and, and if I'm having a bad day and I decide no, then, that's, then the person's out of luck. That's not what's being said here. But what is being said in these couple of verses is that with the gift of the Holy Spirit comes a mission that's parallel to Jesus' mission. What he did, he is now sending his disciples to do. And that continues to today. What Jesus did, he is sending us to do. And part of that is talking about sin and proclaiming freedom from sin. And so the job of the disciples, the job of all followers of Jesus, not just the professional ones, the pastors, the missionaries, the whatever, is to keep pointing people to Jesus, to keep calling people to turn to him, to turn away from the idolatry that we talked about, to the ways of this world and turn to him. We call that repenting. The job of all disciples is to baptize and to make more disciples. And the job of those disciples is to keep pointing people to Jesus, to keep calling people to turn to him, to baptize and to make more disciples. And their job is to, you get the point, keep pointing people to Jesus. When John describes the work of Jesus, he holds in tension these two things of salvation and judgment. When Jesus came, in chapter 3, we have that, that moment in chapter 3 where he's talking with Nicodemus, and we have those famous verses, right? John three sixteen and 17. We see that Jesus came to save humankind. That's what he came for. But God, God so loved the world in this way that he sent his son that all who believe in him may not perish. But for those who reject Jesus, they miss out on that. There's still blindness. There's still judgment. There's still darkness. This is Jesus' continuing work to call people to himself, and we are a part of it. Now listen, that first Easter weekend revolutionized the human experience. His, his death and, and resurrection accomplished so much for the world. It accomplished reconciliation with God, adoption into the family of God, which we looked at last Sunday. His death was the payment for our sin. It brought salvation but it also brings judgment to the world. Again, how we answer the question, who is Jesus, has implications and it has consequences. And so the job that Jesus gave his initial disciples, which comes to any of us today who call ourselves followers of Jesus, is to keep up this work and be, do so empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we keep going. We've been sent, so we keep going and we keep proclaiming Peace be with you. Let me tell you about peace. We point to what God has shown us through the person and work of Jesus and what God has done in our own lives to draw us to him, the freedom he's given us from sin and the life he's given us through Jesus' work. We, we unleash divine light in a dark world. And in doing so, when we do all of that, we put the question of judgment and salvation in front of every single person. And I know that this can all sound very stressful and very difficult, not fun, not politically correct, not 
a good way to win friends and influence people, necessarily. But Jesus is with us. He's brought us peace. And he wants us to keep on sharing that peace with as many people as we can. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are and for all that you've done. Thank you for the, the examples we can take from this text. That when we are fearful and hiding maybe who we are, our, our identity and affinity with you, we're not too far away. You can come and meet us where we are. Thank you for your promise of peace and the depth that that is. Peace with one another, peace with God, peace with the world, peace and, and freedom from sin. And thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers us to continue doing your work. And I pray that this morning, I, I know that there are days and weeks where, where I don't necessarily feel that power in me. And I kind of revert back to, to fear and worry and all the things. But even this morning, would you remind us and empower us in a, f a fresh and new way so that we can continue on with your mission, the mission you sent us to do. Jesus, thank you that you came and your mission was to seek and save the lost, to draw us to you. Thank you that you went to the cross to pay for our sins. You died the death that my rebellion, my idolatry, and my sin deserved. But you conquered sin and death and were raised on the third day. We pray all these things, Jesus, in your good name. Amen. Team, would you come? last um, song, the old, old wonderful hymn that we're going to sing. The scene, I think, thought of as an Easter hymn, perhaps, but we celebrate Easter every Sunday, every day of our lives. The atoning victory over the grave, and that victory was bought for us at the cross. Let's stand and sing On a Hill Far Away. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame and I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain so I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down I will cling to the old rugged cross And exchange it someday for a crown For that old rugged cross So despised by the world 
there's attraction for me for the dear lamb of god left his glory above to bear it to dark calvary so i'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last i lay down i will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown in the old rugged cross stained with blood so divine a wondrous beauty i see for it was on that old cross jesus suffered and died to pardon to sanctify me so i'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last i lay down i will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown to the old rugged cross i will ever be true its shame and reproach gladly bear then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever i'll share so i cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last i lay down i will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown as we wrap our time together let me uh, pray this benediction over you and we've been using this one from Ephesians chapter 3 for most of the year because it speaks to who we are in Christ. It speaks to the, the, the core of our being, the, the heart of, of who we are made to be. So let me pray this for us from Ephesians chapter 3. I pray that his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit and that Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him and your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep his love is. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. And then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. And now all glory to God who is able, through his mighty work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than all we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever Amen. Amen. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. God bless you, and peace be with you.